Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. After throwing down one of Hoboken's most famous roast beef sandwiches from Fiori's, Frank Napolitani and I had the opportunity to have an enlightening conversation that centered around financial services, relationships, and how to build a great reputation. There's no beating around the bush in this one. Frank's an impressive guy with one of the best Rolodexes in the hedge fund community, period. After spending the next 45 minutes listening to our conversation, you'll know why I make this bold statement. Actually, I'm not going to make you wait 45 minutes. I'll give you the highlights. Frank's is passionate about his clients, is passionate about his business, and passionate about making himself and those around him better. After all, you don't become wildly successful in this ultra-competitive hedge fund industry by staying stagnant. And as you will learn from this conversation, sitting around and letting things come to him, they're just not in Frank's DNA. This is a good conversation to listen to if you're interested in learning about the hedge fund industry or for learning about how to build a business and a great reputation as well as what it takes to be successful. Of course, a good conversation wouldn't be anything if we didn't delve into how Frank established such extraordinary relationships and what he does to stay current with those fortunate enough to be in his sphere of influence. He also shares with us how he leveraged his network to be a great resource for his company and his clients. According to Frank, everyone benefits from a good network. Frank's a fun guy with a deep resource of knowledge and contacts, but don't take my word for it. Tune in and turn up your volume so you can decide for yourself. Enjoy my conversation with Frank. Welcome to Conversations with Connors. Frank, I do not want to botch your name, so if you'd be kind enough to uh, say your name, that would make my life so much easier. Frank Napolitani. I don't know. I have enough trouble with my name, Connors. Frank, I'm really happy to have you on today. It's so funny how life works. I used to own an executive search firm, and almost 10 years ago, I had a search in the prime brokerage space, and your name had popped up multiple times. I did try reaching out to you, didn't have any luck connecting with you. So it's really ironic that we're sitting here today. Probably had a very good gatekeeper at that time. So that's good. (laughs) Frank got a really interesting background. I don't want to steal his thunder. I'm going to let him tell us more about his background, but uh, I'm excited to have him on here today because there's so much knowledge and wisdom in the hedge fund space that he can share with us, not to mention his story and his successes and how being a good guy, building relationships and doing a good job has served him. So Frank, if you'd be kind enough to just give an overview of kind of who you are and the skill set that have made you successful, I'd, I'd love to start there. Sure. Background. Um, so I'm dating myself. I've been in the hedge fund business since 1997, so I'll, I'll be 45 in March. I got into the business in 97, like I mentioned. I was a hedge fund analyst at a fund of funds. That fund of funds focused on emerging managers, which we loosely defined as under $500 million and under a three-year track record back then. Uh, It's probably a little different these days. Um, So I was an analyst for the first five years of my career to the end of 2002. I then joined a family office in uh, northern New Jersey, in fact, the town of Hoboken. That family office was a prominent real estate developer, and they still are today. Um, I had a dual mandate there, was to manage the hedge fund assets on behalf of the family, and then also was a co-general partner of their uh, private equity real estate fund that I helped them run. In 2005, I uh, went from being on the buy side to the sell side. I went into a prime brokerage role, and I ended up becoming head of sales and head of business consulting at a prime broker, focused on helping hedge funds launch. And uh, over over my roughly 10-year period in prime brokerage, I helped about 180 hedge funds launch during that time period. Some, some became very successful, had a lot of fun doing that, really was helping people. People know how to run a, a book or we'll say a portfolio. They've never run a business before. And these are very smart people that come out of the Ivy League. They're, they're phenomenal investors, but figure out how to pay bills and you know hook up with vendors and the right vendors to use and those type of things, budgeting the business were, were often challenging for them and they were open, most were open to be, you know, to being helped. So we, we you know, I, I focused on doing that, uh, which was very successful. In February, 2015, I switched roles. I still stayed on the sell side 
we'll say the vendor side. And I moved over to my current firm, Eisner Amper, and I had a business consulting for the hedge fund and private equity practice there. So it's still a very similar role in helping asset managers spin out of larger organizations and come over and start up their own new businesses. So a lot of that is budgeting and helping with vendor selection, infrastructure, those type of things, which as you can imagine, plays into a business development role for us selling our audit and tax services to these firms. So I've been at the firm since February of 2015, and it's been great. Yeah, it sounds like a fun job. It really is fun. I don't what, feel like I work. Yeah. What would you say is the crux of the skill set that you have that makes you so valuable to Eisner? I'm type A. <laughs> and and, and uh, often mocked by friends about being overly organized, getting up very early in the morning and organizing and, and giving advice as if I was a firm's COO. Um, as if I sat in their seat when they asked me questions, I'm asking as if I sat right there next to them and I took, was taking risk right alongside them rather than being the agent and then paying us fees. I think that's proven to be successful. A lot of firms that I are in clients that I have today and even former clients that are not current clients um, still call and, and ask advice. So I, I, I hopefully I've done right by them where I've, I've played an important role in their business. And even when they get a COO, I often become a sounding board for that COO or chief financial officer as well. So um, the relationships I've built over my 20 year career, both with the sell side and the buy side have given me a, a referral engine as we'll call it. And I'm sure we'll touch on how I'm doing that down the road where I haven't made a cold call in 10 years wow. and I haven't needed to, and <laughs> I have no intention of ever going back to doing that. So <laughs> how have you cultivated some of these relationships? doing what you and I are doing right now, sitting down for a cup of coffee, a, a cocktail, a breakfast, a lunch, and getting in front of people. I've, I've done a lot of reading to learn up, become an expert in the business or hopefully an expert in the business and learn about investment strategies. So when you're sitting across from a fund manager, it's great to read about them, but there's nothing like learning from the person that actually has money at risk. And then learning the legal side as much as I can, and I can, I can get at it pretty well with, with some attorneys. And I don't mean that in any sort of adversarial way, but structuring businesses and, and talking about, you know, structuring of funds, um, I, I can I can do that pretty well. I can speak to the accounting side, prime brokerage. So all, all the facets from my, what we'll say, front, middle to back office function of running an asset management firm, I've, I've spent a lot of time. And from those vendors that do that particular area is who I spend time with. So, and I still spend time with them to find out what is going on and affecting them and what are their key areas that are affecting them will eventually affect my clients. So I'd rather know that up front than, and try to get ahead of those things and be proactive. So Wow. Do you have a day in the life? A day in the life. I know you're an early bird, so I know up you're- Up at you're, four, yeah. at the desk no later than 6.15. Half my day is done by 8.30 when it comes to tasks. Most of the day is either on the phone or sitting in front of folks, whether they're a prospective client, current client, or a vendor that, that we cover. Uh, we cover about 300 vendors. That's about 900 people nationally. Some we know much better than others, as you can imagine, but it's because we talk to firms of all shapes and sizes, it's important that we cover the bulge bracket, middle market, and boutique channels with all different types of service providers in our community. So, um, And that's also a branding exercise. It's important that they know who our firm is and what's important to us and how we price our business. Because from time to time, they'll be asked by their clients or prospective clients, have you ever heard of Eisner Amper? A or B, I'm looking to switch accounting firms. So it's good for them for us to be front of mind versus back of mind. What are you doing to separate yourself? It's funny, prior to us sitting down here, you were telling me that you guys aren't number one, yet in my years of covering funds and a significant portion of my business was the fund and the fund of funds, I guess maybe statistically or maybe by the numbers, Eisner wasn't number one, but Eisner came up a lot in, in my conversations. So I'd love to understand you know, what you guys are doing to separate yourself and any any plans on doing things, whether, you know, staying the same or changing? Thank you for the very nice words. The big four, which are, you know, I would say that's the bulge bracket, very similar to the bulge bracket when you come to investment banks and prime brokers. The big four are considerably larger. They're global firms and they're the best known and the largest and all good things and, and nothing negative to say about them. They've got great businesses. Um, I'd say within the middle market, we've we've really become that firm. I'd say when everyone looks at an accounting firm, you assume they know how to do audit and tax. So I think that's the the most commoditized part of it. It shouldn't be. Um, it's an advice-driven business. I'd say where, I might be a little bit selfish by saying this, but where 
we've started to differentiate ourselves as my group. And I have another a lady that works with me in, in New York, and I have another gentleman that works for me in San Francisco. So we're now a three-person team doing the consulting. I don't know one of my competitors in the middle market that does that. And some of these firms are considerably larger in terms of overall size of the firm, but within financial services, what does that mean for us? So we have 1,400 hedge funds and fund of funds as clients, 1,000 private equity and venture capital funds. So it's considerable, you know, it's about 15% of global market share of hedge funds. That's been a big differentiator based on the business that we've won the last three years. And I think a lot has to do is if I'm pricing business the same as somebody else, you know, what is that other differentiator? Well, I feel like I've got somebody I'm thinking about us now, I've got somebody who sat in my seat before and I was on the buy side and I sat in that seat for eight years. So I can give that advice again, acting as if I am their COO, taking risk alongside them and not just talking about debits and credits and taxes. It's everything else operationally about their business, even down to raising capital and structuring and pricing and those type of things that are on uh, literally the front of everyone's mind as they're out there trying to start a new business. So, Frank, how much do you see the relationships that you've built being the difference in be- between you ascertaining the business or not versus, say, one of these, quote unquote, uh, big fours? I would say they've been tremendous. Again, being in the business for 20 years, I've built up a number of relationships. Again, we talked about some of the size and scale of those, um, of the overall marketplace, but some are clearly better than others. And I can tell you that I know from third parties telling me that I've become their go-to person for a lot of things. That's tremendous. And not just being able to talk about one thing. I don't want to say, you know, a jack of all trades, master of none, by no means am I saying that, but being able to touch and provide an opinion on something. And if I can't get you the answer right there on the spot, I can get you the answer from reaching out to my network because I've got such a vast network. So I think they've been huge. And and not just, just to give you an example, if we're proposing on a piece of business, just as, just like other accounting firms would be, and we're always in competition on that, not only am I going to provide a proposal, but for someone starting a new business, I'll provide a year one, a pre-launch and a year one budget. I'll provide an entire timeline, a checklist of what you've got to go through. These have been built over the last 10 years of me being on the sell side, which this is what I do on the weekends. I build these things out on the weekends because I figure this is going to be something that I wanted to receive. I would want to receive um, if I was in their shoes. And how else can I differentiate myself and my firm from our competitors? And those have become tremendous uh, pieces of, of um, collateral that we send out that, that people actually use and use them not just from the budget side, but also, a, a, like I said, a timeline to follow um, as they're launching their business. Great. You're providing them a roadmap. Yeah. <laughs> and, and who are you interacting with mainly? From a client perspective, it's often the person running the money, the portfolio manager. We went to a very large spin out of a very well-known, very large fund. Um, it's probably going to be the largest launch in 2018. It's well over $3 billion. They've got a full C- C-suite already hired. It's rare they've got a full C-suite hired when we when most That's firms meet with them. It's often the person that manages the money, possibly a CFO if they've hired a CFO. If not, they might be outsourcing that function. Or if they're not outsourcing that function, we're often meeting really with the person whose money it is. So we're there to provide as much advice as we can. And are you there in the beginning as the launch all the way through running the daily business? You are. Yes. So how we've also set up our client service model with our with our team, we sit on the top of a relationship where anything commercial that, that relates to your business, we're there to talk to you about it. You can call us as much as you want. We cost nothing. We're part of a bundled service inside of your audit and tax relationship with us. You'd have a dedicated audit partner, a dedicated tax partner. They'd have related staff, junior through senior staff that supports you. So everything is covered technically, commercially, from from overall running your business, audit perspective, tax perspective. And that's what we say is like really the full circle. Wow. What are the biggest challenges that you guys are bumping into these days? Staffing. Yeah. The business has grown tremendous. I think the number is around 250 to potentially 300 new funds that we brought on in the last three and a half years that I've been there. And now staffing, finding them or having them getting poached from your clients? Both. I won't say we're unhappy when they go to a client. You always like to see a good employee land at a, at a good land, have a good landing spot, but then filling that person's shoes is not the easiest thing to do from time to time. All of our collective businesses in the accounting side of, uh, for our competitors, big four and everybody else has grown. So the demands of, of hiring qualified staff has grown. Always trying to be ahead of that. And, and we just brought on 60 new people in our new, in our new class. I think about a third of those folks will end up in our financial services practice. But 
not everybody likes being in accounting after two years. You know, these are folks right out of college, right? So they might choose to do something different in three years. We all, we've all been there. We all know friends that have, you know, whatever you went to school for, you might change, right? So that happens. So there's, there's, there's that. Wages, technology. I can tell you busy season is busy season. It's <laughs> yeah. probably starting next week around January 15. That, that'll go through June 30. That's that's a 60-hour work week. Yeah. yeah and that's lot. Saturdays, and that's called that five plus months doing that that's wow. and that's a grind yeah. it really is some people to go through a season or two of that and they just say i'm out i don't want to do that anymore however those that get through that they're talented they obtain the cpa license there's a path to partnership if they're good so yeah there is what are you seeing in terms of just the business in general from the hedge fund standpoint whether it's compliance whether it's just the algo you know just how the, the business itself is changing and how's that affecting what you guys are doing sure what do we say post-Madoff was 10 years ago, credit crisis. We're literally, this is literally the 10-year anniversary of this summer. Compliance, that was also Madoff, credit crisis. There was a lot that happened in that particular 08 year. Compliance for funds has grown dramatically. Um, you have to become registered with the SEC when you have $150 million. People don't realize that it's regulatory assets. That means notional. That includes leverage. So if you're a $75 million fund and you use two-to-one leverage, you're going to get registered at $75 million because your $150 million grows. People don't seem to realize that. They think 150, I got a lot of room to do that. You really don't. Futures, you can be doing that at $25 million because the inherent leverage built into futures contracts. So the landscape of compliance, even when you're not registered, large institutional investors look at you and say, okay, if you're going to become institutional, even though you're not registered yet, you should have a culture of compliance. So you pretty much are forced to have all of the things, manuals and and backup systems, all the type of things that, that a regulator would require even without being regulated. So you have to act as if. Well, acting as if costs money. So that's on the regulatory side. That's I've seen the biggest cost there. The biggest, so who has benefited from that? Outsourced compliance companies. You have to have a named chief compliance officer at your firm, but you can be supported by an outsourced company, providing you support not being your law firm. So they're sp- specifically focused on compliance as opposed to legal. The only issue there is it's not privileged. You know, you're not dealing with your attorney, so any sort of communications would, would not be privileged. Another area, um, especially as it relates to new funds, you know, under probably $200 million is the cost of having a CFO. In New York, that could be no less than $200,000, in some case upwards of three equity systems. So you're looking at a at healthcare benefits and all the things that go with that. That's potentially a three fifty to five hundred thousand dollars spend when you when you add all that up, as opposed to outsourcing that function for less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, and you have a team approach supporting you rather than just one person because people take vacations, people get sick, so that business has grown tremendously in the last probably say five years, um, and what's good about that is that it's also been institutional investors have accepted that. Because really what they want to focus on is is within the business, you have someone running the book and someone running the business. And they don't want the same person doing both. Because one creates noise and takes away from them doing the investor from doing their research. Any distraction on, on research and the investment process potentially hurts performance. So they want to make sure that, that he or she is so, solely focused on running the book. And someone over here, whether internally or externally, is running the business. Okay, Strategies, they've changed dramatically in the three-ish plus years that I've been at Eisner. And we've presented over 425 new launches in that in that period. So we've got a good amount of color. And if there's 10 hedge funds launching in New York, I would say we're probably proposing on about four of those. So we've got we've got a good amount of access to who's who's doing what. And in 2015, 60% were equity-based, 20% were credit, 20% were everything else. And I would define everything else as macro fund of funds. 16 was 40% equity, 40% credit, probably 20% everything else still. 17 post-election, market ripped, still going up pretty well. 80 plus percent are uh, are equity. No one's doing credit right now. There's really no, there's no trade for credit right now. Macro funds have been run over. Whenever this market does turn, I was saying years ago that I thought it was going to turn and ETFs keep pushing this thing up, and that's a whole nother couple hours we could talk about. <laughs> it's exacerbated the move up, and I think it's going to probably exacerbate the move down. I don't believe we're going to have a 2008 credit crisis kind of move down, but it'll be exacerbated because regardless of what the price is, things get sold or bought with ETFs. Crypto. So that's gonna. I was just going to ask you that. You're <laughs> one step ahead of me. There's about 120 crypto funds. 40, I believe, were launched. 40 plus were launched in 2017. 
very close with a San Francisco-based law firm that probably did 90% of those. We will not audit those. The There is a, how do you answer the custody rule? So who's owning custody yeah. if, if you have blockchain, if you or I are trading uh, Bitcoin between each other? Or is it SIT? Who prices it? That's an issue. Other firms are doing that. And I don't want to mention who they are necessarily and talk negatively about anybody. Cannabis. We've seen private equity firms launch cannabis funds where they were they're able to buy companies within the supply chain of cannabis because it's obviously it's not federal. It's still state. Because it's not federal, we're not going to audit those funds. Often heavy on the cash side of these are cash businesses. So the ability to potentially manipulate books. So we're, we're, we've, we've chosen to avoid those two types of funds. What about in Canada? Do you guys have a presence there? Because it's we legal. Yeah. Okay, we have 13 offices in the US and another, I think five or six um, internationally as well. Okay. Do you guys have an opinion on cannabis? Like, because it's legal in uh, Canada. So I don't know if that's, and I, it's my understanding that there's some funds that are starting to go that way too. No. No. Okay. Gotcha. So you work with all different types of funds, large, small. It, do you guys have a minimum and is there a maximum size fund that you guys can't uh, handle or manage? No. We have our largest hedge fund, I believe, is $40 billion. And smallest is probably a few million dollars with someone that is incubating a strategy that left a larger firm that says, I'm going to incubate a strategy, put up a two-year track record. I need it audited before I go to the market and everywhere in between there. Do you prefer one or the other? And obviously, you know, the bigger ticket is bigger and more prestigious, or do the bigger ticket funds demand more of your resources? I'll answer that a couple different ways. A, I have given up completely when talking with new launches of who's going to get big. And the reason why is you could hear a great story Ivy League undergrad, Ivy League MBA. They worked at two of the top hedge funds. They did very well. They're spinning out. Sounds great. Great pedigree. And they failed within 18 months or two years versus someone else that they could be fully on, you know, with, with algos and, and they're doing algo trading and, and it's all artificial intelligence. And these are someone you wouldn't probably go have a beer with personality wise. They're just very different. And that person's running a billion dollars in three years. So I've completely given up on who's going to get big. A small story, and this just happened on Wednesday. Uh, someone that I proposed Prime Brokerage on about five years ago, before they started their fund, we had a, we had a breakfast and I, I lost out to a competitor. And, and he was, as he said, it's ripping my heart up by not being able to go with you, but I have to go with who my investor tells me to go with him. I said, totally understand that. Not a problem. So I was just kind of tracked what he was doing. We stayed in touch and he launched his business with about $5 million. He's up to $290 million now, and he just joined an institutional platform that I believe should take him to a billion dollars. So I talk to everybody. You just never know. And again, like I said, I've given up on giving, on, on trying to choose who's going to be that successful person. So I realize the difficulty that investors have in choosing managers because, again, the amount of flow that I see, I just, I don't know who that's going to be. The other side you asked, the second part of your question was, who do you like to work with more or who's more demanding? The large organizations that already have a C-suite with a CFO, controllers, and those type of folks in, on staff, they're already talking accounting language. So they're not really reaching out to me so much for anything related to accounting. They're dealing with the audit and tax partners. That's more budgeting and vendor questions that they have. And they say, okay, we've had XYZ fund administrator or prime broker for the last five years. Every five years, we just have an internal policy where we're going to come up, we're going to put it out to RFP and see where we get. Just A, if we get such a good price, maybe we move. B, to realize or get an understanding, are we still in the market for where we're currently being priced? And C, it's not bad to know who some other folks are out there. So those type of questions will come up. It's often related to fund administration or prime brokerage or technology. It's rare they're switching law firms. It's just, it's a very sticky business. And if they're calling us, they're generally not leaving us either. So it's more commercial. It's more vendor, more budgeting and overall market color when it comes to the much larger firms. So. Yeah. Do these funds, do they appreciate all the different things that you guys have to do? I know that it's a, the, the, the world you're in, it's demanding. Obviously, a lot of the funds, they've got pressure and I'm sure they push that pressure onto you guys. But do they appreciate the value that you guys bring to them? The best ones do, and the best ones aren't always the biggest and, and or smallest. It's the ones we have the best relationship with is we tell them way up front is, you know, we're partnering with you and we want to be as proactive with you as possible. We hope you're as proactive with us as possible. The more we know, the better advice we can give you. So those that understand that and take advantage of that end up becoming the best clients for us. So That's great. That's great. Are, are and, they there... appreci and they do appreciate that, yes. 
Are there any of the, uh, do you guys have any uh, hard and fast rules of funds that you're looking to stay away from? Other than crypto and cannabis, the only other one is not necessarily a strategy per se, but where there's a asset liability mismatch where it's often with illiquid security. So that could be a form of credit, uh, mortgage-backed securities, CMBS, RMBS, something like that, where they're offering greater liquidity to their investors than there's underlying liquidity in the securities that they're investing in. For example, they might offer you as an investor a one-year lockup and monthly redemptions, the ability to redeem every month after that one-year lockup, but the average hold period of the securities that they own are three years. Hmm. So that's to us as an asset liability mismatch. Secondly, firms that also leverage that as well. So direct lending, and I don't want to mention that the lending platforms, but I think there's some fairly popular ones. There are funds that were raised to go out and buy loans off of some of those platforms. And I know the SEC did a sweep of some of these lending, direct lending hedge funds, and they found it to be an issue of these asset liability mismatches. So if that's a mismatch and an issue for the SEC, we're not going to audit funds that we don't feel comfortable with on their asset liability match there. In addition to that, using leverage. So if you can't get out of something unlevered, adding two or three or four times gearing to that, yeah. <laughs> what we saw what happened in 08, it's even worse. What about some of the funds that do stuff a little more esoteric in nature, whether it's uh, investing in the, the merchant cash advance, some of the litigation finance, or just specialty finance in general? Do you guys do much in this? So I'd put that more in the hybrid slash private equity bu bucket, given the liquidity. When I first joined the firm in 2015, this was right around, so you had the shakeout of 08, some firms had to sell off businesses. So for example, financing professional sports teams, financing high-end art and antiquities. Those used to be parts of large major money center banks. When those banks got out of those businesses and they got back to the core of lending to businesses, liquid businesses and mortgages, for example, real mortgages, not the you know, things that happened pre-08, those teams left and started funds because the merchants in those spaces still need the access to financing. The financing went away. So then these firms became the lenders of last resort and the rates they were able to charge from these folks were uh, in some cases astronomical. It's almost like hard money lending in real estate, but it was for other asset classes. So 08 was, was terrible. I mean, it really shook out things and for years and you're still seeing that. So think about a leveraged buyout, a private equity firm buying a leveraged buyout. You know, about 35% is equity that the fund uses and the remaining 65% is financed by senior debt provided by a big bank, and then a sliver of what they call mezzanine debt. Well, that's what you know, Mr. Milken back in the 80s used to raise it from Drexel. Well, that's really that high-yield bond space are financed by hedge funds. That space has grown dramatically, but it's when you've got a good stock market, it's really been good. But valuations have gone up tremendously. Every time I talk to a private equity fund, I ask, so are you a buyer or a seller? And it's unanimous. They've all been sellers. I said, but you're in the market raising another fund right now. like, we have to. You get a four-year investment period, 10-year lockup on the fund. They've got to raise the money when the money's available, but do they collectively think the valuations are getting crazy? Sure. They're paying 10, 11, 12 times EBITDA when the market used to be six or eight a handful of years ago. So, And there's leverage built into that. Yeah. So it's tough to be a smart buyer when everyone else is bidding you up. So. It's crazy. Things are changing. I mean, talk about, if you could, just what's going on with what the funds are charging and how they're making money. Sure. I'll talk about equity funds first. Going back post-08 or pre-08, why don't we say that? Funds used to have a one-year hard lock, like you couldn't get out of the fund within a year. Then they often had a quarterly redemption period or a quarterly liquidity with maybe a 30, 45, maybe 60 or 90-day notice to do that. After 08, where funds you know, suspended redemptions, especially if the underlying securities were liquid, say trading in the S&P 500, investors pushed back pretty hard and said, we're not going to go into your fund if you offer a hard lockup. So that became the con that created the concept of a soft lockup. So that is, is if you redeem within the first 12 months of your investment, you'll be charged a penalty if you redeem two, three percent, something like that, payable to the fund, not the investors, because the two to 300 basis points you're paying back into the fund offsets any sort of any pullback in liquidity, or sorry, pullback in or loss in securities that had to be sold to honor your redemption. So it's it's investor friendly. I don't see a fund without that, basically. And again, equities, not other securities. Then the fees, I haven't seen a 2% management fee on an hmm. equity fund in four years. Wow, Definitely three, but I'd say maybe four years. 
There's pressure even on some of the one and a half percent ranges now. Secondly, to offset some of seed capital taking up equity or large revenue share, they, the funds and driven by legal has created something called a founder's class. So there's, there's multiple classes you can come in as. So a founder's class is often a discounted fee to regular fees. So let's just say that's arbitrarily 1% and 10%. They'll offer that fee share class up until the first, say 50 or 75 or $100 million of assets. It's an inducement to say, why invest now to help them get to critical mass. Once they get to critical mass, once that fee share class has been filled up, that 50, 75, or 100, then they'll default to a regular class. And that could be one and a half and 20, one and a half and 15, somewhere in that range. But is there has there been significant fee compression? There has. The incentive fee, we're seeing more, more popularity. So with a private equity fund, if I'm an investor in a private equity fund, that's still two and 20. That's an illiquid business. That's not like every security trades yeah. on Bloomberg. That's a real relationship business. There's often, before they can get the carry, the carried interest, before they get that, they often have to pay, where a lot of investors don't know this, they have to pay a preferred return to their investors. It's generally around 8%. So they don't get the 20 until they've achieved 8%. So it's a, that's a big hurdle to get over. A lot of private equity investors also invest in hedge funds. So the concept has become popular of having, in essence, a hurdle rate. People don't have a problem paying an incentive fee in the hedge fund space. However, if your net return after all fees and expenses equals, say, that of the 10-year treasury, I took risk to earn the same thing that I would get without taking any risk. So that's a problem. So they don't necessarily want to pay the incentive fee on dollar one. So they're creating a hurdle rate. And I would say that the 10-year treasury is probably the most popular. Once you get over the net return over the 10-year treasury rate, then you can earn your full incentive fee. So that's growing popularity. I would say that's probably two of every 10 funds that we see that are doing that. Yeah. And again, the concept here is, this is what we advise clients on is, how can I align myself more with with investors without literally giving away the store from a commercial standpoint because they're running the business. They're running a business still at the end of the day. So, Yeah. Let's talk about you. I would love to let everybody know a little bit more about you. We'll do a couple rapid fire questions. And then after that, I'd love to get more into your cranium in terms of how you think about relationships and how your network has served you. So uh, let me know when you're ready to go and uh, fire away. All right. As say. <laughs> we already know the answer to this, but let's give it a shot anyway. Introvert, extrovert, centrovert. Extrovert. <laughs> sure you want to think about that? <laughs> <laughs> you get up at the crack of dawn. What time do you go to bed? How many hours a night are you, uh, how many hours of sleep are you getting a night? If I'm up at 10 o'clock at night, that's a real push. <laughs> Really? So somewhere between nine and 10. Yeah. Okay. So you're still getting some sleep. Sure. Do you keep your cell phone next to your bed at night or are you uh, disciplined to put it uh, downstairs? Or keep I put it that downstairs and it's shut off. However, my iPad is next to my bed and that's the last thing I look at is emails. The first thing I wake up and look at are emails. It is. I have clients and vendors and folks that I talk to in London and Singapore and we're a 24 hour business. They like that I'm, I'm responsive to them yeah. and they've grown accustomed to that. And I want to treat them the way that I would want to be treated talking and asking questions from folks. So I want to be able to uh, get back to them quickly. You're their guy. What do you do to stay sharp physically? And what do you do to stay in sharp mentally? <laughs> physically is an issue. <laughs> I haven't put enough <laughs> focus on that. <laughs> mentally, constantly reading. Oh, yeah? What do you read these days? Uh, you, you name it. I like James Baldacci, James Patterson from just an offset of, uh -huh. of, you know, that stuff I like to read at night. I got a new car, so I have audio books that came with a car. I've oh, really? I've ripped through they? three books already. Uh, I've seen The Big Short. I've read The Big Short, but I listen to The Big Short now, and the, and the book is way better than the movie. I'm not putting the movie down, though, sure. which got me into reading another book called Circle of Friends by Charles Gasparino all about insider trading, which got me into another one and another one. And another. So... And I have friends that are attorneys that are big white collar attorneys just th that are neighbors that were part of some of these big cases and getting their opinion, hearing how people have written about. I like to get both sides, yeah. the bull and the bear case, if you want to call it, and really learn about that. Like I said before, you can read a lot, but then talking to the person that has money at risk is very different. Yeah. Um, where they go home with their portfolio every night and the P&L of that, put, that book every night. So as much as I can and, and reading white papers and articles, then I'd like to reach out to the person that wrote that and either if they don't live in New York, you know, have a coffee, you know, try to have a call with them. And if they do try to hook up for a coffee or I just get to know them. Do you find they're receptive to that? Walk me through a call. 
of, you know, you've read a white paper, you were intrigued. Most people like to be complimented when you've written yeah. something. So I think that's a good opening line. You put the subject of the article that they've written or the paper that they've written in a subject and you just, you send them a nice note and it doesn't have to be long and a whole, it, it can never sound salesy. Yeah. Just say, you know, I'd like to spend 10 minutes and bend your ear. I had a couple of comments or, or just thoughts. So I'd love to, love to do that. It's a pretty high hit rate to do that. Again, people are nice and they wrote articles for reasons. Yeah. And if they are, they generally are trying to market their business, market their practice with that being a thought leadership topic. I do it. I mean, it's a big part of what I do in business. I write a lot, write a lot, speak a lot. So um, have people reached out to you from some of the stuff that you've written? Sure. Walk me through that kind of I scenario. Would yeah. never turn anybody down on that. Never. You never know who you're going to be talking to at the other end. Yeah. I can speak about this. So webinars, I did a webinar with a service provider last April. We probably had 120 people on the webinar. Wasn't long, it was about 40 minutes or so. I posted on LinkedIn, 3,500 people watched it on LinkedIn or listened to it on LinkedIn. So again, we can talk about marketing stuff, but that's sleeping while I'm, well, it's marketing while I'm sleeping and it costs nothing. So other than my premium membership with LinkedIn, which has been great. So when I just went to London last December or a month ago, um, I had 21 meetings over the course of five days there, and many of them I met through LinkedIn, and I'd say a third of them I met through doing the uh, doing this particular webinar. So that was that was great. That's interesting. So yeah. so you do the webinar. What, what happens? People reach out to you and they say, "Hey, Frank, I loved your webinar. I'd love they to talk to you." They link in first or... and they shoot you a quick message, yeah. and we just schedule a quick call or, and whatever. Yeah. Now, will you accept anyone's invitation? No. How do you, okay. No. Yeah. Um, Walk me through that. If they're in asset management and they're global, why wouldn't I? Outside of the industry, where I don't think I have any sort of a any value to add to them. And, and again, that might sound that might not be great, but I know some people do that. I don't see what value I can add to them if they're not in our industry, you know. And that's within financial services or asset management. So, if they are in that space, I'm, I'm generally accepting. I'm sure. And, and do you just accept it, or like myself, if people just I, I don't know who they are, or they're not referred by somebody, and they just send me just that that carbon copy click, you know, I don't accept. You know, unless I do know them, I just you know, as a, as a rule of thumb, it was a it's lazy, b I don't know who they are. Well, I guess I, you wouldn't like how I do it. That yeah, that's that's your style. I won't is say that, that, it, that isn't my style. <laughs> um, if I've met them and like all, all the people in London that I, that I went to, I went to a particular lunch on the Wednesday that I was in London, it was over the holidays and it was a holiday lunch and there was about 25 people there. And the organizer was kind enough to send me names. I didn't ask for emails. I wouldn't want to do that. And I ended up talking with 18 to 25, but I didn't want to seem too pushy and Hey, can I have your business card? It just wasn't that kind of place. So I linked in or attempted to link in with 18 of them. And the opening lesson was our opening line was we met yesterday at XYZ's event. And I think 17 of the 18 linked in with me, which was fun. That's perfect. If it's not that, for example, Part of what I'm doing now, and I started in June, is operational due diligence. We talked about this prior. That is a big part of the investment process institutionally. And vendor selection and vendor approval is a big part of operational due diligence. And that is to weed out and make sure you're not a Madoff, right? Yeah. And pre-Madoff, there used to be maybe 10 questions in a due diligence questionnaire about operations and back office. There's probably 10 pages of those questions now. So it's grown dramatically. And there's actually roles, ODD, operational heads of ODD, analysts. So there's over 500 employees or 500 um, practitioners that I've come to identify in uh, just through LinkedIn in the ODD space globally. And I've LinkedIn with over 300 of them since June. And many of these people are, are the type of folks that I spend time with in New York or when I'm traveling to San Francisco or I just went to London with because it's partly a branding exercise. They're going to see funds that that we're their auditor for that they're potentially going to, to uh, invest in or not invest in. We want to make sure we're not the reason why that, why someone would, would lose out internationally. Domestically, that's that's never been an issue. So, yeah. and then what do you do? Do you keep a CRM, or how do you? I mean, there's a lot of names that you're, you know, 300 names. Forget about all the others that are part of your. I kind of use just, yeah. use LinkedIn as almost the quasi CRM. There, I years ago they used to allow you to export. I wish they were able to allow you to do that again, but that'd be great to be able to export stuff into Excel and shoot it up into a CRM. But they just they don't let you do that. I, I kind of use it like that rather than you know a call list of who I'm. I, I'm not reaching out and calling. I, yeah. we're doing. So many events and sending out, and this is just my three-person team, we're probably going to do 40 events this year. And that's doing a small, from doing webinars, from hosting cocktail receptions, breakfasts, you you name it. We're hitting a lot of conferences as well, and we're doing things around those conferences. We are always have an invite going out. So we're dripping on people in different cities. I use the event or the thought leadership piece or the article 
or the invite for an event that we're hosting or moderating something at as the drip. I'm not dripping, hey, how's the proposal look on your end? Have you chosen an accounting firm yet? Commoditized salesy, and I'm sure other people do that, and I don't want to be that way. And then it doesn't come across that way when the way we go about doing things and uh, it's been successful. So that's great. How do you, I mean, do you just have an exceptional memory or how do you remember all of these people and the, the relationships that you've built throughout the years? One name triggers me to another one that, tri- I mean, think about when we got here about who my yeah. next door neighbor is and <laughs> down, down the yeah. line and how long you've known her. So yeah. it's somewhat memory. I mean, I might not remember what I did yesterday, but I might remember, you know, if you asked me a name, I could probably go. Yeah. Well, you were good. Sure. You were just rattling them <laughs> off. You know, yeah. you know, like I was saying earlier, I mean, your name has been popping up for years. You know, Rob Rockstar. I don't know if sure. you remember, you know, Rob. And then obviously, sure, sure, sure. you know, Ron Benash. And yeah. I mean, just, the, you know, the names. It, it was funny. I was looking at your profile on LinkedIn, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And we're connected to so many of the same people that if we pulled this up right now, we'd probably just start laughing sure. or just having a field day, you know, with uh, stories of these people. Getting back to you for a second. What about habits? Any habits in particular that you have, good, bad, or indifferent? I try everybody that either emailed or called me to get back to them that day. Never want to be a black hole for somebody who feel like their email went into a black hole or their call went into a black hole. Even if the call, because what's good about our system, our email, our phone system, if you get a voicemail, it shows up on your email. So you get that. I could forward it to him saying, hey, listen, I'm jammed up all day. I did get your voicemail. I'm going to have to talk to you tomorrow. At least I'm setting a level of expectation for that person. So that's important. Rather than thinking that they left a voicemail or, or send an email um, and it went into a black hole. It's not perfect. I try to. You're traveling. Your time differences. It's not always you're on a plane. It's not always going to happen. But but I that's what I attempt to do. So is that why my iPad is next to me at bed and up at four and hopefully sleeping by 10? Yes. That's, that's a big reason why. Yeah. I like that. It's funny. It's something that I do notice. A rule of thumb that I try to tell people is if you can, you know, within 24 to 48 hours, get back. We're in a contact sport and, yeah. and sales, business development, marketing, consulting. Yeah. They're calling for a reason. They're not calling to say, hi, how are you? And let's go hang out. They're calling for a reason. They have a question. Yeah. What do you think of when it comes to, to networking? Do you have an opinion on it or do you have a philosophy? It's totally or- changed. So where I'm at now in my career versus where I was at 20 years ago, and what I've learned within that, I help mentor other other people from other other firms in addition to my own team. My team is- I'm going to want to hear about that, by the yeah, way. 17 years and 10 years younger than me, respectively. At that age, again, mid late 20s, early 30s, where you're kind of new in the business, I felt like I had to go everywhere and meet everybody. If you're in New York City in our industry, financial services, let's just talk about the hedge fund industry. If you get to know the service providers, legal, accounting- admin, prime brokerage alone, you could be busy going to events from breakfast through dinner and cocktails four nights a week. So you literally could be in the, if you get in the circuit, we'll call it, the problem is you get identified as being on the circuit. And those who are on the circuit don't do as much business as those that aren't. doesn't mean you can't go attend things, but today at my age and being in the business for 20 years, if I'm not speaking at it, if it's not our firm event or I'm not supporting a good friend, I'm not going. Wherein, if this was me talking to you at 30 years old and I'm only five years in the business, that's a different story. I'm there. And you can ask my wife. We've been together for 15 years. She knew I was out, some cases, two to three nights a week attending these things. So um, that's pulled back. Where am I spending most of my time? Those that I do the most business with, we've grown up in the business together. They're at law firms, accounting firms, administrators, and on down the line throughout the, what I'll call the, the ecosystem. And we're texting and on deals, like we're all looped in on deals. So it, it's been great. The advice that I can give someone is never sound too salesy. If you don't know what your firm does, learn about what your firm does. Best thing you can do is, is talk about, ask questions, don't even talk, ask questions. Where do you live? What's your favorite team? How about this weather? You know, if they bring up business, respond. Don't you bring up business first. He who talks first dies, right? You know, and again, regardless of age, you don't want to come across as salesy. When people are out at these things and they're prospective buyers of what you sell, they're also people. You know, they're not just a sale or a prospect. They're, they're people. So people like to do business with people that they like. They hope that you're smart at what you do and your firm's good at what you do. But they still like to do business with people that they like. And then the follow-up from there, after you get the business card, and what I do, I create as a contact the next morning, everybody, 
in my Outlook, and I try to link in with them. So I can see if they've switched firms or whatever they're doing. Plus, and most importantly, when I'm distributing content, it's always going on LinkedIn. So I find this is, again, a way for me to drip on people. It's either distributing content or an event that we're hosting, and they're getting something from me two times a month or at least 20 plus times a year. So let's talk about mentoring because that's a huge piece that a lot of, I don't understand why more people don't have mentors or they don't, I don't know if it's just not taught in schools, but there's some really good statistics on people that have found mentors and how much better they've done. Of course, I don't know them off the top of my head, but I know that it's, that it's real. And uh, I also know that a lot of people don't not only have mentors, but those who do either they got lucky because someone like took them under their wing, but but most people don't really know how to proactively go about finding a mentor. And even if they do find one, how to handle the mentor relationship. For example, you know, you go to, you, you find a mentor, that mentor is doing you a solid. So in that capacity, you should be, you know, if you're my mentor, Frank, I want to go to you. I want to set up certain times. Maybe we meet once a quarter or whatever our time is, but I want to go to you with an agenda. And I want to maximize your time because you're busy. Think of all the things that you talked about doing, whether it's emails at night, calls, all these things you're attending, these, these events you're hosting, the clients that you have to respond to. Your time is gold. So if you're my mentor, I need to maximize your time and make this focused. Can you talk to me about experiences you've had, whether it's mentoring other people or just just any opinion you have? I didn't have a mentor myself. So I, I kind of drew from a number of different areas of, of people that I respected that are obviously senior to me. On the mentoring of others, I just did it this week and I did one right before the Christmas holiday as well. One person is 26, the other one's 28. One works at a outsourced compliance firm. The other one works in a fund administrator. One's a man, one's a woman. They just asked me about processes. They said, why don't we go have a breakfast? And we did. It's got to be early because um, we start early. And I then said, why don't we set up something where you come up to my office once a month and we'll go over what you've done. Monthly. Uh-huh. What wow. you've done. Let's go over your process where you have questions because it doesn't sound like some of these people are getting as much support internally. And I've grown to like them. And I believe they're smart and they're talented and I think they're going to do well. But they're on the fringe of either they're going to hit it or I don't want to say fall on their face, but they could have it could cause them to completely get out of the industry. And I don't want you want good people in our industry, and I think this is a, a crucial time for that. And and I'm not everything to everybody by any means, and I don't mean that in a, in a pompous way. But I've grown to like these two people, and I care, so I'm helping. Have they sent you a thank you? Sure, they did. Okay. Absolutely, great. That's a, I like that. One other thing that people do with, with thank you cards, very rare, actually handwritten thank you cards goes a long way. Lost art. Everybody lives on email, text, and, and the occasional phone call, but it's easier to email and text. But send a thank you card. I have a whole stack of them sitting in, in my office just for those type of things. Yeah, it's the little things that, that yep. make a big difference. So it's funny you talk about meeting early. I've got a friend that he gets hit up to be mentored all the time. And people are always asking him for things. And he's, in my opinion, overly generous with his time. And he said what was really good he had read, or maybe his mentor gave him this advice, but he suggested that uh, he sets ridiculously early meeting times because it just, he's like, you know, I stopped moving around my schedule for them. I said, hey, you know what, let, let's, they can cater to me. I'm the one doing them the favor. And he also makes his meetings a little earlier than normal because it's, it's a little test. He's like, and if they can't pass the test, you know, if they can't come to meet me at breakfast at six in the morning or six thirty in the morning, then I mean, that's a, that's a small ask on my end. And if they can't do that, then, you know, why should I? You know, I don't disagree one bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good advice. Frank, do you have a, a process when it comes to networking? I do, and it, it is, I'd almost call it a, a hub and spoke kind of concept, and it's driven by thought leadership. And this is to reach clients, prospects, and vendors. And it's through reading and writing, speaking and writing, I'm sorry. Either I'm moderating a panel of experts or I'm speaking on a panel as a, for a particular topic, um, or I'm writing about a particular topic that is, that is a current event or a current topic that's affecting our industry. Then the distribution of that, whether it be through webinar, whether it be through a white paper or an editorial for a uh, industry magazine or something, um, the distribution of that both pushed out through email, through LinkedIn. I've mentioned LinkedIn a couple of times. I'm, I'm a huge buyer of LinkedIn. Um, it's been tremendous for my own personal branding, firm branding, and those type of things. So there's something, I don't know what, what you want to call it, but 
when people sit in a in the crowd and they're watching someone speak optically they're thinking that person is the expert if you're writing something and there's your bio next to it and the picture next to it and you're writing it you are the expert in that particular field so coming across as that expert hopefully you can back it up with substance coming across as that expert people view you differently when you are speaking with them and talking to them and like your advice matters you got to be able to deliver on the actual content though so the reading, the speaking to industry professionals, not just the buy side, but also the sell side, the vendor side, again, legal and on down the line, not acting salesy. So I have a very consultative approach to how I sell, and it's literally leading with advice. And I give it's a lot of goodwill up front, but it doesn't stop after the sale happens per se. Um, so I don't even like to say that I'm a salesperson, but it's more developing business through consulting and advisory services, which are bundled inside of our audit and tax engagements. So, but in the end, the hub is that, is that real uh, thought leadership focus. So yeah. give me a story before we wrap up. I'd love to hear just an interesting, if there's anything outside the box from a relationship standpoint and from networking of whether it's a client or a relationship that you were able to bring into Eisner or any of the other companies that you've uh, worked for. I would say success story, and it's somebody I hired. December of 2010, he worked with me at my former firm in the prime brokerage side. He was hired when he was 27. I think he's 32 now. He runs global business development for a fund administrator. Uh, he is absolutely crushing it. He's raised $9 billion of assets in the last five years in uh, client assets to bring onto their platform. They've gone from a small boutique to a you know, to a middle market firm. He sat next to me for six months and he literally attached himself to every single meeting, every pitch, every conference call that I did with a vendor, a prospect, or a client. Learned that process and does that every single day now and has built a tremendous business. So the process works. Yeah. And, and he's a really good success story. So. Wow. Wow. Does, and was, and he's I, become a great friend. So from that. were you a mentor? I mean, clearly you are if he's followed your process or I hired him. Yeah. So I, I never like to say was it was boss. And and quite honestly, the, the two folks that work for me now, I never say that I you work from it's it's yeah. we work together. But am I mentoring both of them in some form or fashion? Yes. That's fun. I mean that that was those are good success stories. And they were I'm I'm and he's become a very good friend and then uh probably one of my best in the business. That's great. Yeah. I really appreciate the the time. The insights have been awesome. I mean, the amount of information that you've been able to provide the audience is great. So much people can learn. <laughs> I mean, the amount of people, whether if you're looking to get into the industry, learn about the industry, provided a lot of valuable content for us today. Do you have any questions? Anything in particular you want to ask me? No. All right. Then <laughs> awesome. Thanks again. We appreciate you uh, becoming a guest on Conversations with Connors, and I can't wait to get the feedback that we're going to receive. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If so, check out some of my others on conversationswithconnors.com. If you're someone looking to build a business, increase your sales, or make a career change, go to networkwise.com. There, you'll have access to a bunch of resources that can help you get started. Thanks again, make it a great day, and remember to always networkwise.